chapter there. Uh, the end of the chapter is all about Ruth and how she becomes one of the grandmothers of our master, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing. Ruth had no idea when she was born that she would be someday the grandmother of the Savior of the world. And here's what I want everybody to know today. You have no idea what God can do in your life and through your life. You have no idea how significant you are. Now, I know some of you are protesting even as I say that. You're saying, Pastor, I'm not significant. I'm not important. My life doesn't matter. In fact, maybe some of you are saying, when I die, nobody will even miss me. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, what's life all about? What's the point? Well, I hope that by the time we're done today, you'll have a brand new view and an understanding of what God thinks of you and what God wants you to do. The fact of the matter is, is that God has got a purpose and a plan for every single person here today. Every person here today is important because every person here today has got a job to do, a job that only you can do. What is your purpose? Have you ever thought of that? What does God want to achieve through your life? And at the end of your life, how will your life have counted? Will it have mattered? I believe that one of the great things that's going to happen when you and I get to heaven is that there's going to be one mighty big party. And everyone said, and what are we going to talk about? Some people ask that. Well, I believe that what's going to be happening is we're going to be celebrating for a very long time the ways that God has used, been able to use us and the fruit that's come from our lives. You know, I once heard of a woman who loved deals. She loved getting good deals. And so she would literally go anywhere to find a good deal. How many ladies know what I'm talking about? Uh, how many men know what I'm talking about? I love stores that have chairs. <laughs> and this woman, looking for a great deal, was even willing to go into the poor end of town to go shopping. And so she found a good parking stall, wasn't too far from the door, well lit. You know what you go through to make sure that it's a safe spot. So she got out of her car, and in her hurry, she locked her keys in the car but didn't know it until she got back. She runs back to her car thinking, I'm going to get that door open, get in, lock the doors, and take off, right? Wrong. Her keys are locked in there. Now she's saying, God, I just spent all my money on these great deals, I bought all this stuff because it was cheap. And I got no money left to call someone to help get my car unlocked. So what do we do, folks, when we don't know what else to do? Oh, yeah, we'll pray. And so she says, oh, dear God, I'm in trouble. I need you to help me. Show me what to do. Send somebody along that can open up my vehicle. And so she prays and prays, and suddenly uh, some guy walks along. And... Uh, he goes, uh, need some help? And she looks at him, and he's scruffy and not, not really your knight in shining arbor, but hey, she can't be too choosy, right? So she says, well, as a matter of fact, I've locked the keys in my car. And she says, hey, no problem. So he goes into the store, comes back with a coat hanger, and after just a couple minutes, he gets that door unlocked. And she says, 
Sir, you are an answer to my prayer. You are an angel. And he says, actually, I'm not. I just got out of prison. (laughs) And so she looks up to the sky and says, God, thank you for sending me an expert. (laughs) God... (laughs) God's got a plan and a purpose for everybody. The question is, do you know what God's plan and purpose is for your life? Listen to this, and I want to read to you this again. Ruth chapter 4, starting at verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord. Who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May his child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Wow. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. And the neighbors said, now at last, Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And let's, read, let's flip over to a few verses here to verse 21. It says, Solomon was the father of Boaz, and Boaz was the father of Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Now, I want you to recognize something before we go any further. Because if you know your Bible, and if you actually take the time to read the genealogies in Scripture, you will know how significant this is. By the way, a genealogy is simply your bloodline, all the people who came before you, your grandparents, your grandfather, your grandfather, your grandfather. Very, very exciting to do that kind of thing. I found out my grandfather, the last recorded grandfather, it's 1630, the year 1630, his name was Richard. And then uh, we don't know what happened before that. But we assume there was another grandfather. But here's Jesus. If you read Matthew chapter 1, you find that Ruth is actually the grandmother of Jesus Christ. She had no idea. She had no idea what God's purpose was for her life. But you see, here's the thing that you and I need to recognize about Ruth. You need to recognize her faithfulness, her willingness to show up and do whatever God wanted her to do. So here's the thing. Ruth makes this decision. She's going to leave her old culture and come to the culture of the people of God. Naomi says, I'm going to Bethlehem. Orpah says, I'm not going. Ruth says, I'm going. She makes a decision. She shows up. Naomi heads back to Bethlehem, and there at her side is Ruth. Ruth showed up, and Naomi says, Ruth, you got to go get some food for us or we're going to starve. So she goes gleaning for wheat, and she didn't know it was Boaz's field. She didn't know anybody, but she showed up. And when she's there, Boaz scouts her out, notices her, and he says, we've got to be nice to this woman, and finds out, in fact, oh, yeah, you are the woman from Moab, Right. Hey, well, you know what? Uh, Continue to glean wheat in our field. And she shows up. She shows up every day. And when she goes home and tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, about her good fortune, 
Naomi says, well, then keep on going back to that field. Don't go to any other field. You remember that if you were poor, you could go to the, to the fields, and according to Jewish law, the farmer was supposed to leave behind the droppings of his, of his uh, harvest for those who were poor. And so she showed up. And Boaz looks to her and recognizes that, yeah, she is one hot lady. It doesn't actually say that in the scripture, but <laughs> we know that that's when it's, what's in his head because he scouts her and says to... She shows up. Naomi says, hey, go, go, go and talk to Boaz. Go and make it clear to him that you are actually... Uh, interested in him and she she shows up and eventually Boaz says yeah you know what I'm going to be your kinsman redeemer I'm going to marry you and she shows up for the marriage and then Boaz says yeah and we're going to have kids and she shows up for that too (laughs) and when it says I want you to recognize something today so often in doing the work that God wants us to do in order to live that life of significance that really makes a difference in this world, it requires you just to show up faithfully saying, God, I'm going to do whatever it is that you want me to do. That was Ruth. God wanted to use her for his purposes even though she didn't know what they were. Now, I want you to know something today. God has got a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for you. And one of the great joys of this life is finding out what it is that God wants us to do. One of the great joys of our life is finding the fruit or seeing the results of the life that we live. As long as we're living a life that's for the glory of God. There was a great man uh, who's really well known, especially in the 1980s. I've graduated from Bible college. And his name is Howard Hendricks. And he talks about how he became a Christian. And he said he didn't grow up in a Christian home. Far from it. In fact, his grandparents were raising him. And it was actually more his grandmother was raising him because the grandfather was always at bars getting drunk. In fact, it was one day Howard Hendricks uh, was out looking for his grandpa, going from bar to bar. And while he was out looking for his grandpa, uh, he ran into a man by the name of Walt, W-A-L-T. Don't even know what his last name is. And Walt said to Howard, uh, Howie, I want, you to come, I want you to come to my Sunday school. And as soon as Howard heard that, I mean, he goes to school all week long. He's not going to go to church on, he's going to go to church on Sunday and go to more school. So he said, no, I'll pass. Thanks very much. But Walt was persistent. And he started, he struck up a conversation with Howie Hendricks and got to know him a little bit. And before you knew it, Howard Hendricks was saying, yes, okay, I'll go, I'll go. And he went. And he discovered a room full of other guys who'd never been to church before. In fact, there were 13 of them. After a few years of Sunday school with Walt, here's what happened. 11 of those 13 guys who were not from Christian homes, no Christian background, 11 of them went on to full-time ministry, either as pastor or missionary, or in Howard Hendricks' case, as a Bible college professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Because of the faithfulness of one man who showed up to do what God wanted him to do. 
Now, I want the Spirit of God to speak to your heart this morning because here's what I know for sure. I know that God will use you and give you a sense of great significance if you are prepared to surrender your heart fully to him and say, God, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I know you hold tomorrow, and I want to be part of whatever it is that you want to do. So who is it that God uses? Well, look at someone like Ruth. Very unlikely candidate to be used by God. I mean, she's from the wrong culture, worshiping a wrong, <laughs> a false god, the god Chemosh, who sacrificed people, who wanted people sacrificed. From, not from a, a, a Hebrew family, surely. Uh, that was a strike against her. She had just been through tragedy. She lost her husband and her, and her father-in-law. They died. She was poor, unconnected, and uh, to make matters even worse, she was a woman. No offense, ladies. But at that time, what's a woman going to do? What can a woman do? In so many cultures, in so many ways, women were considered a second-class citizen. Could God really use Ruth? I can assure you that that was not even on Ruth's mind. So here's the thing, folks. I want you to, to think of some of your favorite biblical characters, those greats that you know so well. And I want you to know that before they were well-known, they were unknown. Before they were those, those famous and popular Bible story characters that you know, they were nobodies. And here's the thing that you will discover in God's economy, is that God takes nobodies and he makes somebody out of them. And that's what God wants to do with your life. You think you're a nobody. You think you've got nothing to contribute. You think that your life is not valuable. You think you've messed up too bad. You say, Pastor, if you knew my history, if you knew my past, man, you, you'll know that God can use a lot of people, but he sure can't use me. My life is a disaster. And I have no idea if even God even loves me. Well, hold that thought for a minute. Because I want to introduce you to some very interesting characters in the Bible. People who were nobodies and people who I, I'm guessing probably uh, done a lot worse things than you have. Think of Noah, for instance. How does the story of Noah end after he saves the world? He's, our last image of Noah is what? As a naked drunkard. God used Noah. Look at Abraham. I mean, if anybody had looked at Abraham, a guy who's in his last years of his life, 100 years old, can God use this guy? Surely his time is done. My dad's 77 years old. Dad, according to, if God does in Abraham, or does in your life what he did in Abraham's life, the best is yet to come for you. Another 25 years, and then you'll do something great. <laughs> Besides give, bringing me into this world. Jacob, man, he was a liar. Actually, actually, Abraham was a liar too. Abraham was afraid that one of the kings whose land he was passing through would be so, so desirous of Abraham's wife that Abraham says to Sarah, hey, if he asks who you are, don't say you're my wife. Say you're my sister. Ew. But it worked for a short time. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a liar. 
Leah. Anybody ever hear of Leah? She was ugly. I'm not the one that said this, folks. I'm not the one that came to that conclusion. I've never seen pictures of Leah. I have no idea. But apparently she wasn't too good looking. When it came right down to it, Jacob wanted to marry his sister, or her sister, Rachel. But the father said, I'm never going to get rid of this girl. (laughs) So while he's not looking, slips Lee into the tent, and, well, the rest is history, as they say. Joseph was hated by his brothers, arrogant, conceited. Who does he think he is? We'll sell him into slavery. That'll teach him. Besides which, Joseph had a prison record. And then there's Moses. God says to Moses, Moses, you're going to be a great leader. You're going to go speak to Pharaoh. And you are going to free my people. And Moses says, but, 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 God, I, I, I can't speak. Stuttering, stammering problem. Can God really use Moses? Well, you know the story. What about Rahab? Rahab of Jericho, a prostitute. Now, you go to Matthew chapter 1, and you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you'll find out that Rahab also was a grandma. Jesus Christ had a grandma who was a prostitute? Yeah. You still think God can't use you? What about Jeremiah and Timothy? Jeremiah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, Timothy, the great prodigy of the apostle Paul, They were young, young guys, and they were constantly being intimidated by their own youth, thinking, no one's going to listen to me. I mean, people have got socks that are older than us. Who's going to listen to me? And there was Bathsheba, husband of David. Didn't start out as a husband of David. David, you see, was an adulterous king who not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but also murdered Bathsheba's husband. David? King David? The grandfather of Jesus? Yeah. And Bathsheba was an adulteress. And she also is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1. Now, Jesus has got a pretty sketchy past. Or at least his relatives do. There's Elijah... Some would argue that he was emotionally and maybe mentally unstable, suicidal. Elijah was one of the great prophets. The Bible says that he didn't even die. He was just caught up into heaven. Job. Anybody heard of Job? He went bankrupt. (laughs) Wiped out. John the Baptist was a crazy man. Roamed around the desert in sackcloth, eating bugs. Can you imagine him setting up his tent and advertising, come hear me speak, as he's munching on a grasshopper? (laughs) Let's go, yay. And there's Peter. He denied Jesus Christ. Even though he said to Jesus, I'll never forsake you. Little girl challenges him, hey, hey, weren't you hanging out with Jesus? I was not. And next thing you know, he's swearing at this little girl. I don't have a clue who Jesus is. And there's a Samaritan woman. Ever hear of her? She was divorced four times. That's right. Jesus said, you have five wives, five husbands. God used her to bring revival to the Samaritans. 
Then there was Paul. Anybody ever hear of the Apostle Paul? Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And he was a vicious, vicious man. He was a, a zealous Jewish man who wanted to see Christianity stamped out. So what does he do? He arranges a posse to go and kill Christians. So heinous was his death march that when he did become a Christian, you know what he said? He said, I am the chief of sinners. Essentially, he's saying to everybody, hey, whatever you think your problem is, no matter how bad you think you are, I'm worse. He's saying, look at me, it doesn't get worse than this. I'm as bad as it gets. I'm the chief of sinners. And then what, this is my favorite. What about Lazarus? He was dead. <laughs> and you think God can't use you? <laughs> you, you, you think God can't, can't do something with your life? Lazarus was dead. <laughs> and Jesus comes along and raises him from the dead. Wow. And everybody sees the glory of God in the resurrection of this dead man, Lazarus. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying that God's starting to get through to you if you think that God can't use you. Because the fact of the matter is, is there's not a person here today whom God cannot use. Now, has anybody ever looked closely at the disciples of Jesus Christ? Have you ever looked at who these guys are and, and what their credentials were? I'm going to tell you, if you look closely at those 12 disciples, there's only one who really stands out as being above the rest. If you look at modern standards and, and today's aptitude tests, this disciple could be seen as the only one who was truly acceptable. I mean, this guy was personally resourceful, he was financially shrewd, and he was corporately cunning. He was brilliant. He's the guy that you'd want on your team. And you know what his name was? Yeah, that's right, Judas Iscariot. And if you don't know who Judas Iscariot is, you really got to read your Bible or at least watch the Jesus movie. <laughs> He's the guy that betrayed Jesus. What about the rest? Man, they were a bunch of losers. Yeah, really. The other disciples would have been rejected because they were petty, they're self-centered, they're vindictive, they're concerned with personal power and position and vengeance, and, and they're ready to call down the fire from heaven to, to, to wipe people out that they thought were not responsive enough to Jesus Christ. I mean, they really weren't great guys. But look at this. God, in his mercy and his grace, in his omnipotence, and his omniscience, his all-knowingness, looks at these guys and says, yeah, they're going to be just fine. Before the Holy Spirit has even had a chance to change them or transform them or make them the kind of men who would actually be acceptable, God chose them. And what does he do? Through Jesus Christ, he sets their hearts ablaze and gives them a purpose. These are the men that we know as the great apostles. Ordinary, imperfect, unprepared, uneducated, ceremonially unclean, 
and yet these are the ones that God said, they have the potential, they have the promise. Now, I want you to know something about you today. God looks at you and sees you just the way you are. And the problem with you and I is that we panic and we think, well, I'm not good enough and I've got to be good enough and I've got to clean up my act. I've got to, I've got to clean things up so that then I'll be acceptable to God. You could never be more wrong. Because the fact of the matter is, is that you can never fix yourself up good enough. What you need is you need the power of God to change you. All you have to do is do what Ruth did. What did she do? She showed up. She said, here, my God. Take me, use me, do whatever you want with me. Israel, Israel's first king, his name was Saul. Tall man, good looking, exceptional by all appearances. Turned out to be uh, a loser and a failure on a massive scale. So bad that God actually had to send his prophet to Saul and say, it's over. You're done. God says to the prophet Samuel, I got somebody else picked out. And so God says to, to Samuel, Samuel, I want you to go. I want you to go to Ruth's grandson's house. You know Ruth? Ruth's grandson, his name is Jesse. Go to Ruth's grandson's house, Jesse, and you're going to see one of Jesse's sons that I've especially picked out to be used by me. And so there's Jesse, and he's thinking, well, for sure, I know which son God has chosen to be the next king. It's got to be Eliab. He's tall, handsome, commanding presence. His appearance is truly kingly. And Eliab comes into the presence of Samuel, and in Samuel's heart, his, it skips a beat, and he thinks, surely this is the man. Oh, he looks like a great king. Everybody will be inspired by Eliab and will follow Eliab. But here's what God says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Can we put that up? And it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected Eliab. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I thank God for that, for myself personally. You see, we all make that kind of a, a, a wrong call. We, we, we make judgment calls that we really have no right to make. And God tells us very clearly how he makes decisions about how he calls people, how he appoints people, and how he uses people. And it's, he, it's, it's just looking at the heart. Is it truly open to God? And here's what we know about David. Even though David failed spectacularly, in fact, if you compare David, who's who's the youngest son of Jesse, if you compared David to Saul, you would find that really by outward appearances, there's not much difference. Jesse, uh, uh, David was, you know, he's a pretty bad dude, really. But what's the difference? God saw David's heart. 
And if you want to get a glimpse of David's heart, you can look at it too. You, you see his heart poured out of the pages of the book of Psalms. And there you'll see a man after God's own heart. In fact, that's what God calls David, a man after God's own heart. Is your heart for God? Because if it is, I can tell you this, God wants to use you to make a difference in this world. What does God want you to do? What is, the, what is that thing that God wants you to do? I know you've got your career or you're working on your career. I know that you, you know, you've, you've got plans. But what is it that God wants you to do? When's the last time you said, God, I want you to use me? How do you want to use me? Because here's what I know. I know that everybody here wants to feel significant, wants to be significant. Now, you've heard me refer to Abraham Maslow. In 1943, Abraham Maslow presented a theory in psychology titled The Theory, A Theory of Human Motivation. And it's in that paper in 1943 that he introduces this hierarchy of need. And we've reviewed this in the past. But the first few uh, uh, needs, first physiological needs, you need to eat, you need to breathe, you need to drink water, you need to have a roof over your head. Those physiological needs, you, you can't do anything else until you get those needs taken care of. And then it goes on from there. Then the need for safety, you need to be safe, you need to protect yourself. But after that, then it's very interesting what happens. Because now it's not just raw needs we're talking about. We're talking now about the next three are really... Emotional needs. Interesting, of the five, three of them have to do with the emotion. And so that third need, which we've discussed in the past, is a need to be loved, the need to belong. And remember we said that God knew at the very beginning of creation that that's what we needed. And for that reason, God gave Adam Eve. It's not good for man to be alone. That's what church is about, a place where you can come and belong and not be alone. But let's move on now to the next two points. The next one is a need for esteem. To be esteemed by others and to actually feel self-esteem and self-respect. And Maslow declares that all humans have a need for self-respect and for self-esteem, and they all need to be respected. Now, it's interesting. If I see a breakdown in a marriage or breakdown in a family or there's problems between children and their parents or parents and the children or at workplace, here's what, I, here's what I will often look to first is their respect for one another. Now, here's the thing about being in God's service is that not only are you and I called to respect each other and respect the people in our life, but here's the thing. We discover when we sign up for service and we show up, as Ruth did, that God respects us. It meets, it meets a deep need in our hearts. And we say, God, hear my. I. I love you. You love me. And I want God to experience what I was created to be. You see, you and I were created in the image of God. Do you, do you get that? You're not an animal. You, are, you have been created by God, the crowning achievement of God. And here's, here's, what it's, here's what it means to find significance. Is that you recognize that God has got a special work for you to do. That's what Ruth discovered. From having nothing now to being valued. Not only by Boaz, but by her mother-in-law and by the whole community and by God himself. 
wow, there is nothing greater. And that fifth need that Abraham Maslow talks about is self-actualization. And Maslow says, what a man can be, he must be. I'm going to tell you, folks, that is Christianity 101. God wants you to do the thing that you were created to do. You say, Pastor, this is, are you just sort of taking psychology now and applying it to scriptures and trying to make it work? No, look at This is what the Bible says. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Look what it says here. For we are God's masterpiece. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you are God's masterpiece. Would you say that with me today? I am God's masterpiece. Say it. I am God's masterpiece. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And how many know that God don't make no junk? You are God's masterpiece. Look at the person beside you and tell them you are God's masterpiece. Go ahead, tell them that. that that's going to shock some people. They didn't know that. Yeah. Now you thought... You know, we've been to some pretty amazing museums around the world. I have personally seen, uh, I've seen paintings by Renoir. I've seen them by, uh, um, uh, what's the Dutch painter without the ear? Van Gogh. Oh, yes, I've seen, I've seen the actual paintings that he's, I've seen so many. Those who went on a missions trip with us, we, we, uh, we stopped in England for a while. We went to the National um, uh, one of the, the one of the museums that actually holds these portraits, the Portrait Museum, and I'll tell you, these are all masterpieces. Of, some of them valued at seventy-eight million dollars, and you just can't even imagine it. Well, guess what? Sitting here today are the most valuable masterpieces in the world. So many people don't know the Cross Church has got is just full of masterpieces. You, next time you're visiting with your friends, tell them about Cross Church, tell them you're not going to believe it, but our church has got more masterpieces than any museum or gallery in Britain. You go ahead and tell them that. In fact, you could even say, and I'm one of them. And you could say, you could say and the Apostle Paul tells me that himself. For you are God's masterpiece. Now look at, look at this, watch this. It says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us a new in Christ Jesus. So that old person that you were before you became a Christian has been recreated. In fact, the Bible says you've been created, recreated in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so here's the thing, folks. When people look at you, they see Jesus Christ, or at least they should. Remember Walt? We started with Walt and how we reached out to Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks looked at Walt, and guess what he saw? You see, he was saying no to Walt, but he couldn't resist. Listen to this. He couldn't resist. Why? Because he saw Jesus Christ in Walt. He saw that Walt was a masterpiece, and he wanted whatever it was that Walt had. Wow. Now look at this. I want you to know that in my Bible, there is no asterisk beside, for we are God's masterpiece. It doesn't say, for we are God's masterpiece, except for Jeff Weston. <laughs> doesn't say that, Jeff. Aren't you happy? Well. Yeah. It doesn't say, for we are God's masterpiece, except for Daniel Fairground. doesn't say that. We're all God's masterpieces. And so your job and my job is to do what Ruth did. We need to show up and say, God, what do you have for me to do? Because the Bible says clearly that God has got good things planned for us to do. And he planned it a long time ago. 
What is it that God wants you to do? It's interesting how those who are created anew in Christ will especially discover their needs met, as outlined in Maslow's list. Need for love and belonging? Check. Need for esteem? Check. Need for self-actualization, that is accomplishing something significant? Check. Interesting, isn't it? Folks, that's the power of the gospel. That is the Christian message. Now, God doesn't, here's what, here's what I'll say. I, I hear people say, Pastor, I can't, I can't really serve anywhere because I'm not well-equipped. I don't have the ability. So here's what you and I need to understand today. God never calls the equipped. He always equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He, he equips the called. And I'm going to tell you this. It's not about our ability. It's about our availability. That was Ruth. Here I am. I'm showing up. I'm doing whatever God wants me to do. I want to just share with you, and we're almost done here. I want to share with you um, a story about Ollie Matheson. Nobody here knows who she is, but I do. When Gloria and I were working with the missions department and traveling around, going to tell Canada about our mission work in Greece, we were given a, a, a place to live downtown, and in that block was a lady by the name of Ollie Matheson. She literally lived, lived like 20, she was like 20 feet from our door or less. And she knew we were just a young family, and, and so one day we get a knock on the door, and it's Ollie Matheson, and she has an ironing board in her hand. She said, I thought you just, I just thought you might need an ironing board. Hi, I'm Alan Duncan. <laughs> nice to meet you. And, uh, I mean, it was really kind of bizarre. But I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do need to use your ironing board. And I told her who we are. We're young missionaries from Greece. And, in fact, don't have an ironing board. We'll need that for when we go to church. We can iron our shirts. And then we got a knock on the door again later. And she's back with a a jar of jam. She said, I got this jar of jam. I thought you might need it. Well, I said, well, as a matter of fact, I love jam. And so that was the beginning of our friendship. And so we started connecting with each other. And we, we'd stop in the house to say hello because she had no family, no friend, nobody. She had nobody in her life. And uh, one day we just said, we knocked on the door. We said, Ollie, we've got to go. Uh, we're going on a, on a six or seven week trip. We'll be back. And uh, we'll see you when we get back. Just wanted you to know that we're, we're gone. We're, we're traveling for the missions department. Now here's what she didn't know. But nobody knew, because I wasn't telling anybody. I'd bring my needs to the Lord. We, we had no money in our pocket, because we were missionaries. Not a nickel, nothing. And we're getting, getting the car loaded up, and Gloria's saying, well, how are we going to get there? And I said, I don't know, God will provide, but he knows we got to go. And she comes running out, and she says, hey, I just felt God telling me to give you this money. She gave me 500 bucks. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's not enough money to get there, back to Vancouver Island and back, but it was enough to get there. And, I mean, that's a story for another day to find out how I got back. <laughs> but God provided. Now, this developed a friendship, and we, we stayed in touch for years. It was a number of years. And then, you know, we were over across town at one church, and then God called us to this church, and we were here for a number of years. And as it happened, we were able to buy this building, and we began our building program. In that time, Ollie never gave us another nickel, another cent, and we never asked for any money, never did, never have. Just trusted God. And we began the building program. And one day, I get this call. And some of you have heard this. 
she says to me, uh, I, I need my toilets plugged. I know you're the son of a plumber. So I figured you could do it. Went over there and unplugged her toilet. I grumbled a bit to God. God, don't you see how busy I am? Can't you find someone else to do this? And as I'm done unplugging the toilet, she says, oh, and by the way, here's a check for $25,000. My dad never made that kind of money unplugging any toilet, ever. <laughs> here's 25000 That's for the building permit. What she didn't know is that I had a big bill due that very day. God prompted her heart. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to keep a very long story just long. She, before she died, gave to this building program almost $200,000. And, I mean, I never would have guessed in a million years that she had that kind of money. I never ever, I was never a recipient of any of it. I never got money before. I never got money after. But I had enough money. And we paid major, major bills during our construction program. Now, here's the thing, folks, is that she was always faithful, serving God, doing what God wanted her to do. And there was a little old lady that had nobody visiting her, so she went faithfully visiting this little old lady. And, and she didn't know this was going to happen, but when the little old lady died, she left everything to Ollie. And so Ollie had this money, and she recognized that this was not hers to spend any old way she pleased. She, had, she took a little trip and then kept the rest in the bank waiting for God to show her what to do. And when we began this building program, God spoke to her heart, and she knew now what she needed to do with that money. And as, as time went by, month after month, here's a check, here's a check, here's one for 40000 here's one. For, like, it was unbelievable. Never experienced anything like it before or since. But here's a woman who's willing to show up and do whatever it is that God wanted her to do. Now, I want to ask you that question today, because here's what I know. Every single person here has it within their power and their ability to do things like Walt did, and to do things like Ollie did, and to do things like Moses did, and the things that Peter did, and Paul. You have that in you. Why do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that you are God's masterpiece and he's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. God has a work for you to do. He's got a plan for you to do. And you have to show up. You've got to say, God, here am I, use me. And if you want to get busy and you want something to do, you just talk to any one of our staff. We've got so much stuff that needs to be done around here. There's so many hearts and lives that need to be touched. We can point you in the right direction. you got a few extra bucks. You're getting a bonus this Christmas. Why not give some money to help us send some hampers up north? How about filling a few bags, Ziploc bags? I want to close with this. There's a man by the name of Albert McMacken. Nobody's ever heard of him. Nobody knows who Albert McMacken is. And if you do, shh. 24-year-old farmer, recently has come to faith, so excited about what God has done in his life. God has washed away all his guilt, his shame, his sin. He's transformed. He wants everybody to experience this. Full of enthusiasm, he begins filling his truck up. Now, he had an old pickup truck. How many remember the days when you could fill up a pickup truck with people and it was okay? 
That's what he did. Four in the cabin, and then, I mean, a pickup truck. Well, as many people as you can squeeze in there. And he, and he would bring them to hear the revivalist by the name of Mordecai Ham. Among the people he tried to get there was a, a tall, good-looking, uh, it was actually the son of the farmer he was working for. And this son of the farmer wanted no part of his religious revivalism, no part of it. He had women to chase, good-looking girls out there that he was falling in love with. He wanted no part of going to any revivalist or, or, or evangelistic meeting. But this guy knew what God had done in his heart, and he wanted that for the farmer's son. And he begged and pleaded and bugged and cajoled and poked, and you got to come, you got to come, you come. So finally, this guy is worn down, and he can't stand it anymore. He says, all right, on the condition that you don't bug me again, I'm going to come once, and, and then after that, keep your mouth shut. I don't, I don't want to be bothered with this. And he shows up to that meeting, and he hears Mordecai Ham preach. And this young son of a farmer who's busy chasing girls is absolutely enthralled at what the preacher's saying. God got a hold of his life and he became a Christian. Like that. Now we're going from from no interest whatever to full surrender. God, you got me. In 1934... Because of a nobody like Albert McMacken, Billy Graham gave his life to Christ. And because of Albert McMacken, that nobody who led Billy Graham to Christ, he didn't even lead him to Christ. He just brought him to let the evangelist do his job. Billy Graham went on to preach to over 215 million people because of a nobody like Albert McMacken. Now, here's the thing, folks. Not many of us can, I don't know if anybody here could do anything that Billy Graham did, but every one of us can do what Albert McMacken did. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart today, because here's what I know, is that God wants to use every one of you to do something significant in this life. The question is this, will you show up for duty? Will you say, God, here am I. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you so much for what you want to do in our hearts and lives. Give us the courage, Lord, to show up for duty. To do that thing that you're prompting us to do. We think of Ruth on that day when Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, you girls go home, I'm going back to Bethlehem. Orpah made a decision, she went back home to be with her family. But right there, Ruth was faced with a decision. Would she go with her mother-in-law and embrace her mother-in-law's people and her mother-in-law's God? Or would she go back to her old place, her old culture? She made that decision. She showed up. And God, here's what we know today. Every one of us has got a decision that we need to make. We're either going to pursue our own agenda or we're going to say, God, I want to pursue your agenda. God, I want, to, I want to experience that significance that only you can give. So, Father, thank you right now for your work by your spirit in the hearts of each one here. And, God, we pray right now that our hearts would be open to the move of your spirit. Because someday we know we're going to get to heaven and we're going to celebrate the great things that were done through our lives.
things that we don't know anything about. No more than Ruth knew that she was going to be the grandmother of the Messiah. God, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out some pretty exciting things. So God, we surrender our lives to you right now, asking in Jesus' name that you give us the grace to do that work that you've called us to do. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Tell the people beside you, go do what God wants you to do.